when we brought all of our crops in, the, in from the village, the community, we brought our crops and we put them all in the same storage facilities. Because to the Choctaw, it's better that we should all have some than for some people to have a lot and others to have none. So everything was shared. Hello, dear friends and damn givers. Welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. I'm your host, Nick LaPara, and this is the show where we chat with people who saw something wrong in the world and gave a damn about it. We hope that today's conversation will help you give a damn in your world today, wherever you may be. Friends, my guest today is Charles Robinson. Charles is a good friend of mine, and he and his family are Native American. Charles belongs to the Choctaw tribe, and his wife belongs to the Blackfoot tribe. 21 years ago, they started a nonprofit organization called The Red Road. Now, The Red Road exists to empower and share hope with Native American communities all over North America. In fact, he and his wife, they travel with their seven children uh, to do this incredible work all over the place. A couple of years ago, Charles came up with a brilliant way to support the nonprofit so that he didn't have to do so much fundraising all the time. And I spent 14 years doing nonprofit work. Constantly fundraising is hard and it's not fun and it never, ever ends. So Charles decided to start a cigar company. Now, if y'all follow me on social media, you know that I love cigars. I smoke every day and it's one of my favorite ways to rest relax, and it simultaneously gives me so much energy to create and make stuff. So I met Charles a year ago, and we connected immediately because he's an amazing dude and cigars, and the story of how his cigar company came to be is amazing, and it's filled with so much meaning. So while I was chatting with Charles, I was reminded once again how there are so many cultures out there that put so much time and thought into the naming of things. The Native American people are among the thoughtful cultures I'm thinking of. There is so much meaning and intention into everything they say and do. So the cigar company is called Atsaniki, which means storyteller in Choctaw. And there are three cigars so far. They're coming out with a fourth soon. But the three cigars right now are named after three of his seven children. Nanaya means peace. Imaya means victory. And Tashka means warrior or warrior spirit. And while we were, side note, while we were chatting, we were smoking the Tashka, which is one their newest cigar. And it's fantastic. It was so good. Anyway, he showed up to my office a few weeks ago so we could record this chat, smoke together, and spend some socially distanced time together in the same room, which I haven't done much of with people over the last few months for obvious reasons. It was so much fun. And I'm so excited for you to get to sit in on our chat a few weeks later. Now, before we jump into the conversation today, I want to give a massive shout out to this week's sponsor, RedCap, a fantastic company that makes workwear and uniforms. Not only is RedCap a Nashville-based company, which I, of course, love because this is my current home, but they champion the men and women out there who are committed to making our communities thrive. Everything they make, from work shirts to coveralls, is crafted with purpose and on purpose. They are a no-bullshit company. What you see is what you get, and what you're getting with RedCap is a group of people who genuinely give a damn about work and a life done right. So until July 31, you can get 20% off your first purchase at redcap.com using the promo code GIVEADAM. That's redcap.com. Use the co promo code GIVEADAM from now until July 31 for 20% off. 
I also worked with them last month or a couple months ago now to interview amazing damn givers all over the country that are beautifully contributing to their communities during this global pandemic. You can see more from that series called From the Front Lines by visiting redcap.com slash community. That's redcap.com slash community. Thanks so much, Redcap, for all you do and for partnering with us. Okay, let's get started, shall we? As always, my email is hello at letsgiveadam.com. I'd love to hear from you. And here's my conversation with the incredible Charles Robinson. Let's go. Charles Robinson, welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. Thank you, Nick. I'm glad to be here this morning. We have been trying to do this. Well, I shouldn't say we've been trying. We have texted occasionally. When can we do it? When can we do it? But we met, gosh, a year and a half now. I think it was around, it was in the autumn. We met at the Smoker's Abbey. Yeah. One of our uh, places that we like to be. Yeah. Um, and and smoking is, uh, smoking cigars is something that we'll talk about quite a bit in here because it's part of the work that you do. Right. And we're smoking some of your cigars. Yes. What am I smoking? So you're smoking the, uh, the our newest release. This is called the Tushke, the Atsuniki Tushke. And that, so we've named these three cigars after three of our seven children. Uh, and Tushke means warrior. So it's a little, it's a San Andreas wrapper on it. It's a little more bold. On a scale of one to 10, it's probably about a seven or an eight in strength. It's really good Thank so you. far. Yes. Yeah, uh, are you going to come out? You have seven kids mm-hmm. and you have three cigars so far? Right. Are you going to do seven? We are. We're going to... We've got what we call the core four, uh, and then so four of the kids will have those, and then the other three kids we're going to do like yearly limited edition, limited releases, and so it's that's beautiful. Just you know, available certain times of the yeah, year. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, we'll talk more about cigars later because I want to yeah. talk about your company and how it came to be. There's an amazing story mm-hmm. there, but let's start with. I always love to start with story. I always love to start with background, the who, what, when, where, and why of. Charles Robinson, like yeah. where, what, what are the kinds of things in your growing up years? Where did you grow up? Mm-hmm. Just tell us about, give us some framework for who you are that'll help us understand how you became to be the damn giver that you are. Well, you know, I, I grew up in Texas. Uh, my dad is Choctaw from Oklahoma. That's our tribe. My mom is white. So I grew up in Texas and, uh, and there's not really a, a strong native community where I lived. So growing up, I, I would read everything I could on Native Americans. Now, back then, it's really Encyclopedia Britannica, right? Sure. I'm 53, so we didn't have what we have access to information now. But I'd read everything about it, and I'd want to, I'd want to be like all these great chiefs, these warriors, these Indians that I read about, Sitting Bull, Cochise, um, Crazy Horse, Chief Joseph. I wanted to be like those guys, right? But my real-life example of what natives were was when I'd go to Oklahoma and see family members and friends in the native communities in Oklahoma where there was uh, alcoholism and struggles with addictions. And so I had this, I was torn, right? I wanted to be Indian, but the ones I saw, I'm like, eh, that's not really what I want to live my life like. Uh, So growing up, and then my parents divorced, I was in second grade, and growing up way out in the country down in South Texas after that, where we didn't have running water. We did have electricity, so we we're living off the land more. And, and, and it was there I really began to get a great appreciation of nature. Hmm. Of, uh, of, and looking back on it now, at the simplicity of life, 
that we realized after high school and college and careers and stuff, how long to be back in that simple setting, you know, and all that that encompassed. Uh, so, uh, you know, grew up uh, Texas, then went to college at the University of Oklahoma. Then after that, I decided I was going to go make my fortune uh, and began to, to chase jobs that would take me from St. Louis to Michigan to, you know, other places. Um, actually, let me go back. Prior to going uh, to college, between high school and college, I went and played professional basketball in Europe for a year and just absolutely loved traveling throughout Europe, uh, loved the different cultures. Um, but after I'd, after I'd graduated college and began to try and find a career and make a lot of money, um, it was through that I woke up one day. I was selling corrugated boxes for a large paper company. Domino's Pizza was my number one account, so I did nothing but pizza boxes all the time. And I woke up one day, and I, I felt, and I was just having this conversation with God, and I, and I felt God ask me, he says, how long do you continue to do something that you know you don't want to do for the rest of your life? Hmm. And I thought about it, and I said, well, I don't want to sell pizza boxes the rest of my life. Sure. So the next day, I went and gave my boss a two-week notice. Uh, you had no plans of what to do after? None whatsoever. I love that. And uh, I was in Michigan. I was going to move back to Texas. And just a few days before I was to move back, I got a call from a guy who I'd met six months earlier randomly. And through a conversation with him, I ended up going and working on this dude ranch for about three years, teaching people how to ride horses, leading trail rides, that kind of stuff. Had lots and lots of fun with that. But then, you know, was defaulting on my student loans. So I thought, well, I gotta, I've got to get stuff paid off. So I, I left that. I thought, where do I want to live? I mean, I could go anywhere at this point. So I was thinking, okay, maybe L.A., maybe New York. I love Nashville. I love, mm. I love country music. So, okay, well, maybe Nashville's a place. So essentially, I was driving from Michigan down to Texas. Wasn't sure what I was going to do. I get into Nashville, and my car breaks down. And so I had to sell my only two horses. I had called back to the ranch. I sold those horses to them and pretty much been here for 24 years since. Did you see that as a sign that you were supposed to yeah. be here, like the end of the road? <laughs> that like was it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was hoping it wasn't a dead end, but uh, I, I figured I had arrived. Did you, did you, do you have an ashtray over there? You can ash on the floor if you need to. Oh, okay. You, I mean, I just, this is a shitty floor. If you, if wherever you need to ask, you can, and I'll clean it up. Don't you, don't mess up your, you want to introduce your, your kids? So I brought my two oldest kids with me. This is Dante Bullshields. And Dante is, uh, uh, venturing into college this year. Mm. And my oldest daughter, Lakota Dodging Horse. And Lakota is a student at the University of Southern California. So uh, she happened to be home from spring break during the quarantine and just never left. Do they, uh, Lakota, are they going back to school in the fall or is that all up in the air right now? So that's who we don't know. Yeah. My friend who is on the rowing team said that they're planning on coming back this fall. Okay. But I'm- It's all up in the air probably. It's in the air, yeah. so. Yeah, okay. plans don't mean much right now. Right, right. It's <clears throat> Well, I'm, I'm grateful you brought them and that they could be here for this uh, conversation. Thank so you. thanks for that. So, okay, so you arrived. What age were you when you arrived here? In, you said 20-something years ago, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So I was up, mid to upper 20s, I guess. 
And uh, what happened once you moved here? So you moved here not married yet? Not married. Yeah, not married. Uh, and uh, just thought I wanted to get in country music somehow. But I didn't know what to do, so I had a, I had my saddle with me. So I started going around to farms and asking people, hey, do you need somebody to train your horses? And so the first job I had was working for um, Naomi Judd and her husband training their horses. Uh, and then that, you know, I did that for a while. Then of all things, I ran into an old buddy of mine that I'd grown up with back in Texas who was a tour manager. And he hooked me up with uh, a guy who managed some country artists here in town. Uh, and it was actually Glenn Campbell's company. So I worked for Glenn Campbell for five or six years while I was... Um, just trying to figure out what, you know, I mean, I was enjoying the music industry. I enjoyed that part of it. Um, but then after about five or six years of that, I felt like it's kind of playing itself out. And, um, you know, so there, there comes a time, I, I think, in a lot of people's careers where you realize all my work is really going to make somebody else money. Absolutely. And... There's nothing wrong with that, uh, but I was I was I was no longer content with that. Sure, I worked with great people, loved them, dear friends to this day. Um, but then something neat happened with the guy I worked for. He said uh, uh, his son was in kindergarten and said, "Would I come talk to his class about Native Americans?" I said, "Well, yeah, I'd love to." So I t bring in some artifacts, some of my tribal clothing. I go into the class. And the teacher introduces me as a real live Indian. And I thought, a real live Indian. And she had the, the best of intentions with it. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's like, I realized there's this disconnect on who Native people are in the eyes of the general public. And so it wasn't long after that, I... Um, I started up this organization called The Red Road. And uh, and so I began to go into schools teaching on Native American culture, but the goal was really to be, able, that was really to be able to support the work we wanted to do on Native American reservations. You know, because as I began to look and realize the the all the crazy statistics about uh, addictions and suicides and unemployment stuff on the reservations, uh, I, I, I thought, is there anything, God, is there anything I can do about this? Sure. You know, because I didn't grow up on a reservation, right? I grew up disconnected from real uh, tribal communities. Uh, but I wanted so much to somehow be a part of that. But I didn't want to come in as, as just some fake guy. And I was insecure, quite honestly, about my own identity because, again, I didn't know what it meant to be Indian. Right? In my heart, sure. I did, but I didn't know what that, how that would flesh out. And so uh, as we began to realize the statistics of it all and uh, being a follower of Jesus, at, Jesus, I thought, and I realized statistically only between 3 and 5% of our Native people profess to know Jesus. Again, I just said, okay, God, is there, could you use me in any of this? And if so, how, what would that look like? And uh, so I began to do school presentations to raise money to be able to go do the work on the reservations. Now, what is, where are 
where are the closest reservations to here? Well, around here, the other nothing really close by. So around here, you've got you know Cherokee, North Carolina. Uh, you've got Philadelphia, Mississippi has the Choctaw reservations. Um, but I began to travel out west, uh, Arizona, uh, New Mexico, Montana, um, those states out there that still have uh, reservations that have tribal people still living with more, um, more traditionally. What is it? Let's talk just about being. First of all, I have a question. Yeah. Is is referring to you as First Nations the same as Native American, or is one of them better, or are they kind of interchangeable? They're really pretty, inter- and mostly in Canada, because mm-hmm. uh, we do work on reservations up in Canada. My wife was raised up in Canada on the reserve. In Canada, they refer to us as First Nations. In the United States, it's Native American. Uh, is the most accepted term, uh, but on the reservations, you don't ever we all, we refer to each other as Indians, right? You're not saying, you know, more First Nations people, in a in a casual setting, you know, in in a more professional type setting, you, you use those terms, but you know, amongst natives, most people just refer to each other as Indians. Now, living in Nashville for 20 years, mm-hmm. how has that been as a Native American? Like, mm-hmm. what is the, you know, what's what's interesting about Native Americans is most people don't know right. that many. Right. And when we do hear about them, it's usually in this kind of sad way on some documentary or some TV show, right, right where they are talking about the very real, you know, addictions and poverty That's and different right. things like that. But that's all that we get. Right. And we don't see many Native Americans amongst ourselves, even though there right. are, what is the population of Native Americans in the U.S.? Well, there's, it's it's like less than 1%. In the United States, there's, according, uh, you know, when they, when they uh, there's about 3 million. But that's all, That's a lot of that is self-identified. So, right. so it could be way less than it could be way less, and it really is. Uh, so, um, but it's, I mean, there are five hundred seventy-three different federally recognized tribes. There's still about three hundred tribal languages still spoken. Um, but living in Nashville was unique in that um, because we're something of a novelty in this area, we as in all the native people here, uh, is that. You know, any time I meet somebody, they'll say, oh, well, you probably know this person and this person, right? Right, yeah. Uh, and the crazy thing, many times we do, <laughs> you know, because we're a smaller community. Um, but it's, it's, it's been when we have people visit us from other reservations out west where they experience extreme racism on the border towns. Sure. When they come here and they see how well they're received here in Nashville— uh, it's 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 a wonderful experience for most of them because they're just not used to being celebrated for our culture um, because, again, they come from areas that, that are not so much. Yeah, well, that, that makes me happy about Nashville in yeah. this area, that at least there's a, there's a, uh, a good reputation of being welcomed mm-hmm. here. You know, I have some friends that um, every once in a while, not too many, but every once in a while somebody will say something like, I'm 116th. Cherokee or one sixteenth, right. this or the other. How does that feel? And, and they're like, 
white as a sheet. You know, right. they are they're you know, blonde right. hair, whatever. Right, right, you right, know, right. somebody way back when maybe. You know, right. Like, how does that make you? Is that the is that part of the three million like self identified or is yeah. is that a valid is that a valid yeah connection? And how do it, it you is. see that? It is, and uh, it encourages me that people are proud of their culture. Okay, that that's sure. encouraging. Um, I challenge people to then say, "Well, tell me what you know about your mm. Cherokee ancestry." Go beyond just knowing that you're one sixteenth right. or one right. whatever. Yeah, and uh, and and ask and encourage people to say, "Hey, there's you know there's some good resources out there, even to learn a few basic." phrases or words like how to greet people or or to count or something like that or to learn more about your code that you continue to pass it on and and that's kind of what i try to encourage people to do because you know everybody wants to belong people want to belong to something absolutely and there's a a, a great pride amongst a lot of native people and they want to embrace that um so i, I just try and encourage that best i can because there's so, you know, we were talking before that we started rolling about um, the recent murder of George Floyd, yet another yeah. black man being murdered. I mean, just, I mean, the, the evidence is not all in, but the evidence was there on the nine minute video. Right. Like this was not okay. Um, do you ever feel, but there are still so many injustices happening toward Native Americans, yeah. but there are so, as you pointed out, so few. And when we do hear about it, it's always almost in a, maybe not intentionally, but it's in a demeaning way toward right. your people. What do you want people to know about, how do you feel about that? How do you feel that you're, that I'm sure, maybe you don't feel that way, but I could see you feeling yeah. like, Hey, we're being overlooked. Like yeah. we're this important, we're the important part of America. Like we were, you know, there's mm. so much of history that's been distorted and overlooked right. and just mangled right. to tell a certain narrative about white people and how great they are. So, but so how do you feel? I mean, there's so much outrage over, and rightfully so, there yeah. should be national outrage over what happened to George Floyd and what happened to, you know, so many people over the, uh, over the, you know, every day. The right. ones that aren't filmed. It's happening all the time. Right. Yeah. How do you process through that? Is it even a thing for you? Well. I'm not trying to project on you. Yeah, I just yeah, want to no, no. perspective on it. Um, you know, I, I go back to, um, with regards to any, you know, that no man is an island entire of itself, right? Every man is a piece of continent, a part of the clay that, and it goes on, if a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less. Every man's death diminishes me because I'm a part of mankind. Who's that mm -hmm. John Donne? Mm -hmm. Anytime there's a loss, anytime there's a death, a part it really does diminish me. It takes a little bit away from me, regardless of their culture, regardless of who, the nationality, regardless. Yes. But to our native people, we have been so overlooked throughout history in the United States um, that it's just one more thing. Again, I'm not taking away, and, and, I, and I, I grieve watching those videos. I, I, it, it's horrible. tears me up to yeah. even think about them. But the, you know, what hasn't been publicized 
is the the missing indigenous native women who have gone missing over the last number of years and they just disappear and Mm. nobody knows what happens to them. Mm. Whereas we know if it was somebody, a college student from wherever, it'd make national headlines. But because it's some native girl that's 16 or 17 years old on a reservation in South Dakota or North Dakota or wherever, it it just gets overlooked. And there are thousands and thousands unaccounted for. And, and, and so for us, it's like, well, it's with the exception of a few communities in the, in the United States, there are not enough natives to be a voting block. So the people running for office don't really need to cater to native people. Yeah, they're not going to come on and yeah. host rallies and different things like that. We're, yeah, we're not going to we're not going to swing the votes one way or the other in most places. You know, people will politicians will come to the reservations or come to our powwows for photo ops, right? But beyond that, not much. When you know, with the Dakota Access Pipeline protest that took place up in North Dakota. We, my wife and I, my mother-in-law went up to be a part of that right at the, at the end, right when it all, and, you know, and, and at the same time you had President Trump and Hillary Clinton running against each other for the presidency. And for most native people, whether you liked Obama or not, like Trump or not, or Hillary, whatever, it didn't really make a difference because Obama had a long time that he could have he could have made changes mm. and shut down the pipeline, but he chose not to until the very end when it really didn't matter because he knew that whoever it was, because neither Hillary nor Donald Trump were saying anything about it and were taking a stand for Native people because they're getting funding by all the oil companies, right? So both sides will show up for photo ops, but it comes right down to the needs and the and what's really going on in native communities, they're not showing up. They're mm-hmm. not, you know, they're not jeopardizing um, donation dollars to stand up for our native people. And so, when something like this comes around, like with uh, uh, this this terrible thing in Minneapolis, we're like, you know, I, I hate it for them. And there's a large Native American population up in Minneapolis mm-hmm. also. I used to live there, yeah. And and you know, and I'm like. The same thing, like we were talking about earlier, is that this happens every day within Native communities, but it's not filmed. You know, kids getting arrested for one thing or another, and and they're, uh, they were seen getting in the police car, and the next morning they're found dead somewhere, mm. and the police say, no, we dropped them off at the Circle K, mm. but I don't know what they did after that, right? So there's those stories. We hear those all the time. And it's not just with the police, but it with with you know all kinds of things, and so we're so overlooked, and have become unaccounted for, you know. And I was watching us, social media and the memes and stuff that come up have become a great source of entertainment for me. It really has through this whole quarantine deal, um, and some of the ones I've seen this morning. So they're talking about the looting and everything going on up in Minneapolis, mm-hmm. and and I, I don't I don't approve of that at all. It, it's it's you know people who are not involved going in and breaking windshield. Right. Windows. Yep. 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 But but one of the things, and I'll, I've got to I've got to look read this because it was yeah, just go for it. it was just so 
so interesting. Um, let's see where they... And these are... Other people quoted these. And it says, um, So you want to talk about looting. Over the past 30 years, the top 1% gained $21 trillion in yeah. wealth, while the bottom 50% lost $900 billion in wealth. That is the only looting that I care about. Some guy named Ryan Knight. Yep, yep, I saw that one. Um, looting is wrong. Here's somebody else. Looting is wrong, says citizens living on stolen land, built by stolen labor, powered by stolen resources from poor countries. Come on. Or uh, looting is what... Looting is what filled near, nearly every prestigious history museum in the Western world. Are y'all anti-looting now? Are y'all returning artifacts? So, looting looks different now, right, than it did when they came onto our reservations and are, or, or they're digging up our grave sites and taking all these artifacts they find and selling them off on eBay or whoever to collectors or putting in museums. You know, that's looting also. Yep. But that's legal looting, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, gosh, there's so many places we could go there. Mm. I mean, it's just, it, it's it's so true, the, the first meme that you pulled up about the trillions in wealth that have been gained by just a few people. Um, I mean, it's, it's no secret that, you know, the wealthiest people in the U.S. have actually made much more money during this pandemic. Yeah. They stand to, you know, the the Jeff Bezoses of the world, the Bill Gates of the world, the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world. They're making way more money during this pandemic while yeah. we, while we don't have money, right? right? We're getting a lousy twelve hundred dollar <laughs> check that was already spent before people even got it. Oh yeah. First of all, some people haven't even they haven't gotten right. it yet still, right? But for those that needed it and received it, it was already spent. Mm-hmm. They were late on rent. They were late on yeah. water bill, electric, yeah. Yeah. the phone, exactly. you know, the, their cell phone, you know, company was hounding them. Um, there was very little help from these wealthy corporations to get through this and very little help from our government to get through it. Right. And so the, the, the middle class and poor kept getting more middle class and poor and the richer <laughs> kept getting richer. I mean, that is the looting that it's it is funny to see people coming out of the woodwork. I, I've been having uh, delightful conversations with people that are. You know, they want to make sure that they that they make it clear that they're not okay with the looting and that they're condemning it and this is not okay. And I'm like, I, I told a couple of them, shut the fuck up. <laughs> this is not your right. You you just don't talk about yeah. that. The only thing you should be talking about is the the death of George Floyd. Right. That's the one thing you can yeah. rally around. That's you not don't deflect. get to decide how people react. Right. When if you put pressure in anything. When, when you, you know, there's these, speaking of memes, you know, there's this big TikTok thing where people are putting rubber bands around a, a watermelon and they put hundreds of watermelon rubber bands to see when it, and it continues to compress and compress. And then at 700, 700 rubber bands, it explodes. They don't, you don't get to know if it's rubber band 500 right. or 600 mm-hmm. or 700. You just keep That's putting so them around weird. until it explodes. You don't get to tell black people what to do yeah. when, I mean, Martin Luther King Jr. said it the best, like riot is the voice, is the language of the unheard. Yeah. Like that is what happens yeah. when you continue to get ignored day after day. How do you want them to react? Again, I'm not saying, I'm not saying, again, I don't think looting is is the best way right. to react, but right. I am not going to tell you what to do in that, in that circumstance, right. you know, like 
And, and let's be real about it. All the stores are getting looted, like the, the Targets or whatever, right. AutoZones, whatever. They're all got it. Everything is covered under insurance. Yep. Right. Right. I think, yeah, so, if, if if that is the way, like, I'm not worried about tar- one Target no, store. No, 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 no. It's not ideal, right. but I'm not worried about one Target store. They, they will come back. They're not going to pay for any of that, right? It's going gonna, it's gonna to all be replaced in a year. Target's going to be fine. Right. AutoZone's going to be fine. Meanwhile, probably since George Floyd's death, more African-American people have been murdered by cops or taken advantage of right. or, you know, whatever. Yeah. So that's what I'm concerned about, right. right? And so, yeah, we're not paying attention to the right looting is my point. Is That's a really great point that yeah. our money is being looted. Yeah. by a few people that have strategically figured out how to make incredible, substantial, outrageous amounts of money that no one could ever spend in multiple lifetimes. Right. And so many people, like the three million Native Americans, are not getting the resources they need. I saw, right. I did, speaking of memes, I was on TikTok at the, like a few weeks into the, the quarantine and there was a there was a Native American young man, uh, probably 15, 16, he did a whole 60 second TikTok on how few hospitals and supermarkets are on these reservations yeah. and why COVID-19 is especially hitting hard yeah. on these reservations because they, they don't have the ventilators. They don't have the help that they need. They can't get to, oh, sure, stay at home. And how do I get the groceries that I need? How do I, I'm already at a disadvantage right. in life. Right. How do I get the things that I need to stay alive? Yeah. It's easy for so many people to... You know, I, I was able to transition home just fine. I work out here. Right. I send emails and I do podcasts and right. I do video stuff and yep. it's all fine. But for so many people, that's not a reality. And that's so overlooked. I thought it was really smart. I shared it and I was like, this, th- w- w- pay attention to this. Yeah, We've got to pay attention to the fact that there's like, I think he said like two hospitals and six supermarkets for an entire reservation or yeah. some crazy shit like that. Yeah, I was yeah, like, yeah. how is that possible? How are we okay with that? And then even having access, being able to drive to them. Get, get there because if you don't have transportation you know there there's so much of that and that's just a snapshot of native america right right now if we if we go looking into central and south america i mean we're like i was i was reading something the other day on some of these tribes down in brazil and it's like man it's it's devastating them yeah you know because so many times this is a this is a disease well obviously it's first for all of us but they're especially vulnerable. Yep. Some of these remote tribal communities, and so, and it's going on around the world, right? You know, and and, and that's why. And I I love that. I, I love the let's give a damn concept because and and you no, know, you and I were talking about it in this in this microwave fast food world we live in. We expect to be able to snap our fingers and have and, and see a huge change, right? That's what that, that's what we see on TV, right? That's what we see. Uh, somebody on a game show wins a million dollars for answering X amount of questions. Boom, they're they're rich, right? But that that doesn't last. None of that stuff lasts. If we really want to give a damn, if we really want to make a difference, we do. Just like you were saying, we've got to start with that right around us, and. And focus on that, not focus on, let me see how many, you know, how big of an impact I can make yeah. worldwide. Yeah. Let's focus here. So my my mother, who passed away almost 10 years ago, I mm. guess, 
and she was here in Nashville visiting the week before she passed away. And she was, you know, 70-ish or so and was, um, had diabetes bad and was struggling. And, and uh, we were driving around, and she loves magnolia trees, mm. loves them. Mm -hmm. So we'd drive around just to look at these huge magnolia trees. And she said, hey, can we stop here? I said, sure. So we pull over, and there's a big tree in this yard. She goes out, and she starts gathering all these seeds from these magnolia trees. So what are you going to do with those? She goes, I'm going to, I'm going to go, you know, when I get back to Texas, I want to plant some magnolia trees in my yard. Mm. And I said, well, you know, the tree you got that from is probably 60 or 70 years old. For it to even come up to get to the point where you're going to see it is going to be probably years. eight or 10 yeah. years before it's of any right. size at all. She goes, I know, but you know, It'll be there for others to enjoy. Mm. And I thought, you know what? I love that. What a, a, a perspective to say that it doesn't have to affect me in my lifetime. Hopefully it does for my children and my grandchildren. Well, that, that brand, Seventh Generation, you know that brand? Mm. It's like they, they make like cleaning products and stuff and they make them, they're very natural and stuff. Mm. And it's called Seventh Generation and it comes from, and I'm, I don't want to butcher, so I'm not even going to assume I know what I'm talking about, but it comes from, it's a Native American tradition mm. where they think about seven generations from now. Everything we do right now, we do it with the seventh generation mm. in mind. America doesn't think like that. No. White people don't think like that. No. People in 2020 don't think like that. Mm. They want things now. They're thinking about their they're good. Mm -hmm. And that's fine. We need to take care of ourselves. We need to make sure we can make a living and all that. But when when you think seven generations into the future, that changes what you eat, yeah. how you work, how you recycle, if you compost, the kinds of things you consume, the kinds of things you don't consume, what you're going to give your money to. It changes everything. everything. Yeah. Yeah. Everything. Yeah. And I'm sure that some of whether she knew about the seventh generation thing or not, that's part of it seems like that's part of a kind of a Native American, like, like let's yeah. think way into the future, even if it outlives me, and it will. Right. So, so like my people, the Choctaw people, traditionally, when we were, we weren't a, we didn't have this big romantic lifestyle like the Plains tribes, like my wife, the Lakota, the Blackfeet, the people, you know, chasing the buffalo and doing all this. Mm. We didn't have that. We're like, we were, we were like farmers, Right down in southern Mississippi, sure, yeah. fishers and fishermen and stuff, and so so like dances with wolves. Had that movie been been made about uh, the Choctaw people, it'd have been like dances with pumpkins sure. because that's what we did, right? <laughs> yeah, right. But we had this concept is that when we brought all of our crops in, the in, from the village, the community, we brought our crops and we put them all in the same storage facilities because to the Choctaw, it's better that we should all have some. Then for some people to have a lot and others to have none. So everything was shared, right? And and it's that concept, and I'm not, I'm, it's that concept of what I have is not mine to own, but it's mine to share, mine to be to a share. steward of. Yeah. Right? So like when the Europeans first came over and began to come to the tribal people and say, hey, we like this land, and we'll give you this and this for the, to be able to, you know, for this land or whatever, or just taking it. But when they would ask, many times the native people would say, yeah, you want to use this land? Sure, you can use it. But to the Europeans who come from this land ownership perspective, they think, okay, it's now my land. Yeah. But to the natives, they're like, well, it's not mine to own. It's mine to use or to be stewards of and to share. So it's just two completely different 
approaches, two different perspectives going into, you know, into land usage of land. My greatest desire, I've been harping on it a ton. People on this podcast might be sick of hearing it at this point, but one of my greatest desires for, uh, it's not just Americans, but because I live here right now, uh, for Americans is to realize that, and this is not an argument for a lot of people are like, oh, well, you're a socialist. And I'm like, no, I don't want, I don't care about these party conversations. I really don't. Like, this is not a socialism versus capitalism or libertarianism. I don't give a shit about any of that, really. This is a, if you look at the data, if you look at the science, if you look at history, people are happier. People are happier. They live happier lives. They live more content lives when they are not thinking about only about what they can right. get for their, for themselves. Right. If they haven't, you know, and, and we do see, we, but we do see happiness level. America's not happy. No. We're not happy. You look at some of these countries that do adhere to more socialistic, uh, you know, environments and societies. They are happier. Yeah. You, you can you can because if if I know that you are taken care of, if I know that part of me existing is helping my neighbor, I'm happier thinking about that. That mm-hmm. makes me happy versus oh I've got all of this wealth amassed. I've got all of this stuff. Right, right. My storehouses are full. Right. And not thinking about the person on the street or the person next door or the person across the like it, it it goes back to I identify as a global citizen way quicker than I identify as an American citizen. Right. Because truly what happens to, you know, my friends in in India or my friends in Zambia, Africa, or my friends in Europe or my friends in Guatemala where I grew up, like if they're winning, I'm winning. Yeah. How is that so hard to yeah. grasp onto yeah. that you can only make so much money before you can't spend it? The, the science is there, $75,000, $80,000. That is the tipping point. You are no happier. The guy that makes eighty grand and the guy that makes $80 million a year, no happier. There's not one iota of... You do need, you know, and, they, and the, that number comes from like eighty grand. you can pay for... You can buy a house. Right. You can buy your groceries. You can you have health insurance. You can go on vacation. Like... That is a happy amount. I'm not saying people shouldn't make more. You're not any happier. If you're pursuing happiness, you, no <laughs> That's more. A good point. Not one cent That's over 80,000 to 80 million or 80 billion right. in the case of Bezos and all these other guys. Uh, you're not happier. Yeah. So if you're, looking for, if you're looking for a happy, content life, you're not going to find it in amassing wealth. <laughs> That's great. In the same way that, you know, you're, yeah, it, it, it kind of all runs together. Your mom's saying, I don't care if this seed outlives me. Yeah. This, this sprig that's going to, or whatever you call it, a small right. a sapling, whatever it is. Yeah. Like, if that comes up, great. Because then my friends' as friends, or my my friends' as kids can enjoy right. it yeah. later on. Like, I'm going to plant this knowing that I'll never see the fruit of it. Right. That is a, that is a happy life. Yeah. We could go on and on about I that, but let's talk about uh, Red Road because um, you mentioned it earlier. But like, how did it come about? What does it mean? And what do you all? Because you've been doing it for since what is it ninety seven yeah. or something like yeah. ninety nine or something like yeah. that? Like that's a long time to be sticking with something. Yeah. What do, What do you get to do? How does it work? So, so as I began to real, realize statistically what was going on in Native communities and wanted to be a part of it. I had to come to grips pretty fast that I alone was not going to be able to solve it all, right? I, I, I just couldn't do that. I, I, it goes without saying. Yeah. So what we started doing was, was 
going into small or small communities within tribal communities and trying to make a difference there and just here and then went over here and then went over there. So even now we only really do work ourselves on about seven different reservations, you know, and there's over 300 of them. And so, but our goal is to think, okay, if we can make a difference here uh, and, and if we can even train up other people to make a difference, to show what we're doing, how they can do it in their own communities, that's really the goal is kind of let it, you know, reproduce itself. But so we, one of the things we do is we work with churches or individuals or, or organizations that have a year-round presence on a reservation. And we come in working alongside them saying, what are some of the needs of the people? Uh, and we, we try and help meet some of those needs. And a lot of times it's just, um, you know, it's, it's, it's just, you know, one beggar showing another beggar where to find some bread, right? Sure. Sometimes it's just us. Uh, to try and help out uh, and to get them through a tough season. and But not just through us and the Red Road, but we try and funnel everything through local people because, again, when there's, a, when there's a suicide at 2 in the morning, mm. a phone call to us, we're happy to, to do what we can, but if there's somebody five minutes down the road or 30 minutes down the road that can be there for the family at that time, that has much more power and much more weight than these folks living out in Nashville. So we try and help develop opportunities um, for, for people on reservations year round to be able to contribute there. One of the things we do, we have this program, we call it Baskets of Hope. So we take laundry baskets filled with about $100 worth of household items. Mm. Some, you know, maybe it's toothpaste, maybe it's toilet paper, shampoos, whatever these things are. And we use those as, as just gifts for people. You know, it's not enough to make a huge difference in their lives, but one of the, one of my favorite things is when we take these baskets to different homes or or to give it to people to distribute. Uh, oftentimes, we'll include in there like a DVD or something for the kids, or a coloring book or something for the kids. And how many times we have people say, "You have no idea mm-hmm. how much I needed that item," mm-hmm. or Oh, I was just talking about that cartoon. That was the one I used to watch when I was a little kid, and I was saying, I wonder if it's still around, and now you're bringing me a DVD of it, and I can show it to my kids. You know, these real serendipitous things happening when we're, but it, but more than that is is just to let people know we care. And we try, again, we try and work through people that are already on the reservations because we want, we don't care if, if the red road ever gets credit for anything, right? It, it's no, we're not here to say to get our name up on billboards, mm. right? Mm. Uh, the term the red road to our native people is a term that means to live life in a healthy, traditional red man's way. Mm. You know, where it's an addiction free life where you uh, respect yourself, respect others, respect all of creation, right? But you worship the creator to most native people. You say you're on the red road. They understand that concept. To my wife and I, because we're followers of Jesus, that red road also represents that bloodstained road that led Jesus to the cross. Mm. And so when we uh, we know that we've got to be willing to, to take up our cross daily, we've got to be willing to make sacrifices of our own selves and our own lives. Uh, and, and quite honestly, that's been one of the hard things with, with seven children is that during the summer times, all of our kids, their friends were all doing fun stuff, going down to the pool, going to camps, and all these fun things. 
and our kids are driving across the U.S. and Canada spending time on reservations. And while it's great fun for them, they hear the stories of what all their friends are doing they're missing out on. And now they're getting to see, you know, the Black Hills. They're getting to see the Painted Desert. They're getting to see, you know, Glacier National Park. They're getting to see these things. But it's still, it's different than what all their friends get to do. So yeah. we know there's some sacrifices yeah. that our kids are having to make for this lifestyle we've chosen also. And, uh, but, you know, it, it is it's worth it. It is worth it. It's worth it. I mean, so, and your kids might not realize it now they might start to realize it but i think that'll pay off mm -hmm. monumentally mm -hmm. in the future we talked i grew up in guatemala my parents were missionaries there and i will never ever ever not be grateful mm. for growing up seeing things that most people that i would spend the rest of my life with never experienced yeah that's right. You know, I missed all the stuff, the whatever, the the proms and the camps and all, all the stuff, everything, you know, because uh, I was there during the years that I could have done all those things, mm. uh, 11 or 12 yeah. till 20. Oh, wow. Those are yeah. all, those are, the, those are the years where yeah. you start dating and you start going to this and all the stuff. I missed it all. Yeah. I don't regret it one damn bit. Right. Like not a bit because I got to, I got, I mean, my worldview was exponentially like broadened during that time. And, you know, you talk about, you talked about, you know, I, I grew up seeing, you talk about just the, 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 tri the tribes being taken advantage of and marginalized, not even just being here. You talked about in South America and Central America and elsewhere. There are so many uh, tribes in uh, Guatemala that yeah. their land was taken from them yeah. by the government yeah. and not even given an option of where to go. Yeah. You got to figure it out. So they would, I mean, I remember, I remember very vividly, there was this one huge bridge that we would cross to get from one part of the city to another. And on the side of this, like, I mean, very steep side of this almost cliff side of this mountain, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of homes, you know, and they're, wow. they're, uh, you know, not even homes. They're just trash. Right. made out of trash, you know, scraps of, you know, metal and tarp and just different things, right? And in Guatemala, the way the, the, the climate is there, it's six months of rain and six months of no rain. Those are our seasons. The temperature stays the same. <laughs> it's right near the, near the equator. So yeah, yeah. our temperature never varied outside of 60 to 75 degrees, very rarely. Mm. It was always beautiful temperature-wise, but six months of rain every single day and then six months of drought every single year. And during those six months of rain, almost inevitably, one of these groups that had been pushed off their land, they didn't have anywhere to go, they're poor as can be, they'd set up in this plot of land that they could find, and then uh, mudslides would happen. And literally mm -hmm. in one, you'd open the paper and hundreds of homes just slid right off. I mean, thousands wow. of people just gone in one fell swoop. Wow. That was, that happened year after year. Yeah. And what are you going to do? Yeah. You don't not like you have to live somewhere. So you find a place and just hope to God or hope to somebody yeah. that you don't slide off the mountain one right. morning and it would happen over and over and over again. Um, and so growing up, seeing those things firsthand, experiencing that changed me forever. Mm. So I don't know. I don't know if your if your kids really ex like feel the weight of the things that they've been experiencing summer after summer, but hopefully they will as yeah. they're as they become adults and as they, you know, build families and lives of their own. That stuff sticks with you. It never goes away. Yeah. And 
I feel way better off than my um, American counterparts that did all the things that yeah. kids do. But I just don't see them. And I'm not saying that I'm special. This was thrust upon me, you know, as a kid. Like, I didn't have a choice. I was going wherever mom and dad went. But so it's not a it's not a me thing. It's just that I feel I feel very honored and privileged. I feel better off. Again, not me. Just that I have had those experiences. Yeah. And that I can now think way differently. And then after after that, I spent six years traveling the world. So I even got to see more. So it was mostly, most of my experiences were in Central America. And then I went to, I went to almost every continent and spent mm. time, you know, in some really cool places, you know, like I went to all the great European cities and stuff, but then I spent time in the bush of Zambia, Africa. I spent wow. time in, uh, you know, amazing, with amazing, but very poor people in India. And I went all over. Yeah. And that continued to broaden it and broaden it. So now there's like, I've gone so far down this road, there's no going back. Like I'll forever yeah. think through this lens that I've been given, yeah, and um, I'm a much better person because of it. And that, you know, and that's part of the challenge we have is to be able to um, allow people to see through that lens, right? Because some will never have that experience. Some will never, you know, get to to experience some of those things for a number of reasons, but they just won't happen. Yep. You know, and they. And, and some people just may not have that sense of adventure. I think our children, my children do because they've gotten to see a lot. My uh, oldest daughter who's with us, you know, after after high school, she took a gap year, went backpack Europe. She's 18 years old, right? And she goes and backpacks Europe for three months by herself. Then she goes to New Zealand for three months, just backpacking and hanging out. And so she comes back here, right? Now she's in college out in California. And she's like, I can't sit still. Yeah. Right. Yep. She loves to travel. She loves adventure. She loves reading. She loves, you know, all this stuff. And and she's so much richer as a person because yep. of that. Yeah. Yeah. It wouldn't be wrong for me to go get a corporate job and just do the thing. It wouldn't be wrong. No. But am I using what I've been given right. to the to, to like maximum yeah. capacity yeah. to the best of my ability? Hell no. Yeah. Like I think that's why I have this desire to use let's give a damn and other things that I'm doing. To not judge people, not say you you should think this way or you should be doing that, but say I think you're better off. Like the, a life full of giving a damn is much better. Right. So one of the things you do with with let's give a damn and 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 the people that you bring on to to share is a, similar to some of the things when we talk about stuff regarding Native American history and culture, but especially the historical aspects of of. of what's going on in the United States and Canada. And people, first of all, when they hear some of the atrocities, they hear about the Indian boarding schools, the residential schools, and the and all the terrible things that happened with that, the broken treaties, the, the uh, smallpox-infected blankets. So they hear these things, they say, no, no, my country could never do that. Well, it's there, they have, right? So what we do and what you're doing is you come in, it's like you walk into a dark room, all we're doing is turning the light on. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I love if that. If the room is a mess, it's not my fault. No, nope. you're right? just exposing it. We're just sharing it, and now it's up to you to do with it what you, what you will, right? So a number of years back, when my daughter was in an elementary school, there's another girl in one of the other grades there. They had end of the year school party, right? And they went over to somebody's house and uh, had a swimming pool, so everybody's eating, you know, swimming and doing all the thing. Everybody get out of the pool. It's time for hot dogs. Everybody gets out. And uh, my buddy, his son, 
who was in the class, reached over and, and grabs him by the shirt and says, Daddy, what's that on the bottom of the pool? Mm. And looked down, and there was this little girl at the bottom of the pool. And so they all dove in real quick, bring the girl up, resuscitate her. She ended up being fine. Oh, wow. It was amazing. Yeah, it's a miracle. Yeah, I mean, she was, she was in the hospital for a while, but she ended up being fine. And so, in theory, what could have happened was the dad could have sat there and said, well, it's not my fault she's at the bottom of the pool. Of course. Hey, her parents are the ones that should have taught her how to swim, mm-hmm. right? I didn't push her in. I didn't hold her down. I didn't force her down there. It's not my fault she's down there. But there comes a point when you're aware of something, it's not a matter of whether or not it's your fault, but is it your responsibility to do something about it? Yep. And in that case, obviously it was. So now let's take a look at our society, what's going on, whether it be in... in uh, on the Rosebud Reservation in South Dakota or in Minneapolis or in Houston, Texas, or wherever it is, when we hear about this stuff going on, um, usually to the marginalized people, the disenfranchised, or to the minorities, or to women um, and girls and young children, we hear these things, even though it's not our fault. And I've heard that so many times, it's not my fault, you know, hey, I wasn't the one who stole your land. I wasn't the one who did this or enslaved your grandparents. That wasn't me. It's not my fault. Yeah. But once you're aware of it, it's not a matter whether it's your fault or not. It's it's do you share in any responsibility to do something about it? Yeah. And and that's what that's what we're about. Yeah. I mean, we're the, the United States is I mean, we're horribly in debt, but we're the wealthiest we've ever been right now. Like yeah. this conversation with reparations toward black people, toward Native Americans, like that's yeah. the first thing you hear is like, well, I didn't do it. Yeah. It doesn't matter. You, if, if Again, if you see yourself as part of the collective whole, yeah, uh, then you see yourself as responsible to figure out how to help. Now, in 2020, right. hundreds of years after some of these things happened, even though they're still happening today, but hundreds of years after land was taken and things were, I just, uh, do you, do you, are, do you know about uh, Anne of Green Gables? Yes. Okay, I'm a huge fan of Anne of Green Gables. Read the books, watched the films. I'm a I'm a sort of like weird. People don't usually know. They don't guess that I like those sorts of things because uh-huh. you know I have tattoos and nose ring and blah blah blah. But <laughs> like I'm a I'm a softy. And anyway, there's a new show that Netflix did called uh, Anne with an E, mm-hmm. and it was kind of a, a new telling of it. Mm-hmm. Three seasons of it. It was wonderful. It was super wonderful. But you know this is this is this is Prince Edward Island. It's Canada in the 1800s. Mm-hmm. And in the last season, they invo- they included a storyline about this Native American tribe, which they kept referring. You know, a lot of the a lot of the townspeople, you know, respected respected men in the community and kids because that's what they were told. Kept referring them as savages and savages and. And so I, and they're, they're basing it off of a lot of historical facts. And right. so one of the things they did was this, the state started this like state run Catholic school right? that they wanted to bring, they kind of, the way they posed it, the way they, they kind of presented it to these Native American families is we want to take your kids, put them in school, educate them, you know, but what they really wanted to do was to brainwash them and right. change them. They yeah. wanted them to, to be Canadians, not native, you know, right. first, first, uh, first, first nations yeah. people. And there's toward the end of this, toward the end of the season, like it becomes apparent that they are being abused. They, they cut the little girls. She had these beautiful braids. I mean, just beautiful young girl. And they cut her hair, like cut her hair all mm-hmm. off. 
and she tried to escape and they brought her back and the state was on the side of the school. And what mm-hmm. sucks too is I'm like, I'm Anglo-Catholic and so I'm Anglican, but I love the Catholic tradition. Maybe someday I'll be Catholic. I don't know. But, but it, it sucked seeing this like, yeah. <clears throat> otherwise, you know, the, the Catholics just in the same way that any other religious group, they've done some really fucked up things. They are doing some really fucked up things still, but I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And so I, I love this tradition and it hurt me. Like I would, yeah. my wife and I would look at each other. We're just like weeping. Yeah. Cause it's just like, how, how do you say that you follow Jesus? How do you say that you embrace this religion that is about love God, love your neighbor. And then you try to change these people and you right. see them as less than, and it really, um, I think, I think it's good that shows are not giving a show, you know, I, I think growing up when you see a lot of these like old Westerns, like th- they were portraying Native Americans in a certain light, right? Mm-hmm. It was all, it, you know, these John Wayne films and, you know, way back in the day, it was like, it was all about portraying them as savages, right? right? Yeah. That's how they portrayed yeah. them only. And now I think I'm really happy that even some shows like this, it's a very simple show, is portraying the 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 reality of what was going right. on, the reality of the the complicity of religion and the state in continuing to demean these yeah. people. And, and unfortunately, that was the 1800s. You'd think that we would have learned our lesson by now. Those same things are still happening today. The last Indian boarding school closed, I think, was 1985 mm. up in Canada. So my father went to him, my wife's, both of her parents went to him, a lot all of our cousins and stuff on the reservations up in Canada and uh, South Dakota all went to him. There's a movie called We Were Children. Hmm. came out in 2012, We Were Children. Uh, well, it, it gives, a, sadly, a very accurate depiction of, of what went, pl- took place in these boarding schools. Now, some of them were run by uh, the Catholic Church, some by Methodist, some by Presbyterian, just a lot of different denominations, yeah. Randy churches. Yeah. Um, but the the abuse and everything was, was just horrendous, right? Mm. Um, so my mother-in-law, she tells a story when she was a little girl, and she's maybe six or seven years old, eight years old, something like that. She's in a school, and this little girl comes in. And she'd been there for a few weeks and could not speak. And she's this girl is probably five or six years old, she said but could only speak Blackfoot. She couldn't even speak English. But because, along with cutting the hair, and they would uh, not allow them to speak their own languages. And so they brought this to this little girl up in front of the entire classroom. My mother-in-law saw this. Bring this little girl in front of the entire student body, like in the cafeteria area. Held out her tongue, took a sewing needle, and pierced her tongue with the sewing needle. Said, this is what happens if you speak your language. This is 1980s. This well, this would have been in the 60s. Um, but but these schools still existed up right. until the 80s, right? Yeah, yeah. So so but the, so that so there's such little oversight in within native communities, and so because all these are run by the church, most of them are different church denominations, funded by the government, run by the church. The native people today reject. Christianity based yeah. on that, and why? Why wouldn't you? Exactly. All you've ever seen is <clears throat> exactly. abuse, and and so we, I, you know, when we're out and about, you have a huge task in front of you. Yeah, yeah. And if it was just up to me to accomplish it all, I'd, I'd have thrown in the towel a long time ago, right? But we know that if we can help these people or these people, and and just try and do what we can where we can, 
that can make a difference. And so, so you've got people, travel people especially, who completely reject Christianity based on the residential school stuff, but also based on how, um, uh, how it supposedly contradicts a lot of tribal belief systems. Hmm. My experience is it doesn't at all, mm. right? I, as I've taken a look at different um, origin stories and great flood stories and all these, di- there's lots of stories we hear on reservations from people who do not profess to believe the Bible, but their stories, uh, parallel biblical stories, yeah, very similar. And so I'm convinced of, of two things. One is that God, the creator, is always desiring to communicate with us. And that secondly, English is not his first language. Yeah. Right? He was not American. No. He was not white. So if the only time we're looking to learn about God or hear from God or get direction from God is through a, a, a daily reading or a, a mm. church service on Sunday, man, we're missing out so much on yep. God's desire to communicate with us. You know, I love my children, right? But if the only time they felt Dad wanted to communicate with them is when we sat down once a week to... Talk about family something. meeting or whatever. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean it's it's a lifestyle. It's every day, and hopefully they can look to me and see how I'm living my life and say my dad loves me because he's doing these and these things for me, even though he's not telling me about it. I see what he's doing. Right? How much more is God doing for us and just providing air to breathe, water to drink, right? Yeah. And so, so that for native people to understand that God is. It's not an issue whether or not God is real for the most part, right? For most Native people. Um, but then also most Native people aren't too concerned about what does God look like? Mm. Is he white with a big beard and, you know, up in the mountains? What? That's not really an issue, right? And, and so we run into a lot of different things. We run into the greatest resistance, not on Native communities, but from white evangelical Christians yep. who, yep. you know, are, are, are concerned about which God, quotation marks, are we telling the, the communities about? And I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to differentiate between, you know, your perspective of who God might be and what mm. somebody else's perspective. We're going to go in and we're going to do our best just to love on people develop relationships, be a part of that. Uh, a number of years back, uh, some of the kids and I happened to be in a, a, a music video called Humbling Kind by Tim McGraw. Mm. And, it's a good song. Oh, it's, yeah. And, and it's, it's... I didn't know you guys were in the music video. Yeah. Well, I'll have to look for it. Yeah. I don't know if I've ever seen the music video. It's You should see the video because the video is a beautiful depiction of all these different mm. types of people, groups, and so it's just fantastic. But the... But the message is it should be humble and kind, right? And that's really what it comes down to when you go into and you meet people. You know, you don't have to come in and wow them with how much you know about the world or about this or that or their, even their cultures or anything. Just to, to be humble, be kind to people, be nice. I mean, that goes a very long way with people. Yeah. You know, I don't care. And, and like you traveled around the world as well, right? You've seen lots of different mm-hmm. people groups, lots of cultures. And when you walk in with a smile, mm-hmm. a sincere smile, and you walk in with an attitude of, of hey, I'm here to learn from you. Yeah, changes the game. Yeah, not a here, let me tell you to take this paternalistic 
viewpoint that that most Americans take on things. Yeah. Right. And the Christian the Christian community has done that in Native communities forever. You know what you believe is wrong. Let me show you what how you're supposed to believe. Yeah. And we we've got to get past that. Yeah. Let's spend the rest of our time, because I want to be respectful of your time, and I have a podcast, another podcast episode in like an hour. Um, let's spend the rest of the time talking about these cigars. Mm. And for everybody listening, if you're not into cigars, still stay with us, because there's a great story. We're not just going to talk about cigars. We're going to talk about why and how you started this mm. cigar company, which is um, incredible. I think it's really great. So... We're smoking your cigars, which I've never, I don't know if I've ever sat in the room with someone who owns a cigar company and we're smoking their cigars with them. So that's pretty cool. And it's great. This is a wonderful, everything, I mean, I've smoked the other, you said you have three right now, right? Right, correct. I've smoked the other two a bunch, but this is a new one. Yeah. And it's fantastic. Thank you. They're great cigars. So tell us, how did it, first of all, the name, Atsuniki, yeah. right? Did I say that correctly? Atsuniki, uh-huh. What does it mean? How did it come about? So, uh, so I had I had gone. To, a friend of mine owns a, ma- a cigar manufacturing facility in uh, Nicaragua. His name is Luciano Morales. Luciano uh, invited me to come down to Nicaragua with him. Uh, he and another guy named Mark Reddy. I don't know if you know Mark. Reddy. I know that name. Yep. Uh, I think I met him. What, what does he What does he do? Uh, he used to run a or had a conference called Chasing Justice. That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mark's a, a dear, dear friend, wonderful guy. And so I, I go to to uh, to Nicaragua with Mark and with Luciano. And one of the things that Luciano had, had done, he had his factory was growing. For, so he moved from one small little home to another little building in a different part of town. And he wanted to figure out how to give back into that community. Hmm. And so I went with him over there and as invited and, and we were going around in the community trying to figure out would they what what are some of their needs in the community? Because again, he wants to give back into the community where his factory was. You know, and obviously they didn't have running water. That's an obvious need, electricity, sure. that some of those things. But it turned out interesting, their biggest need at the time was to have the road graded and that that they traveled on. Hmm. Because when it would rain, the water would all run sure. right into their homes. Yeah. So we, Luciano, uh, he worked with the the mayor of Esteli to match him dollar for dollar, and so we put money into fixing that for the people in the community, which is where his factory was. So that was the reason I went. We're hanging out there, and Luciano says, "You know, we should we should roll you some couple thousand cigars and." And let you sell them to support the work you do with Native American reservations. And what year is this? This Quick is interruption. two and a half years ago. Okay, so not we're talking. Yeah, pretty recent. And I thought, well, that sounds man. I, I love the idea. I don't know anything about the cigar business. I love cigars, but I don't know about the business end sure. of it. But somebody's going to give you a couple of thousand cigars. How can you say no, right? And you so, say yes. Yeah, <laughs> quickly. Right away. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so we began to talk about what that could look like. And then after dinner one night, he said, "He said, man, I've got this surprise for you. We're going to have cigars after dinner with, and this guy named him, his name is Arsenio Ramos. And Arsenio is this Cuban guy who was 82 at the time and uh, is this legend in the Cuban legend, cigar yeah. world, right? And I'm, and, but I don't really know this because I'm just a, I just like smoking cigars. You're along for the ride. And, uh, and now keep in mind, we've been smoking cigars all day, so we're probably... 
close to 10 cigars into the day already at this point. But I'm thinking, I don't really feel like having any more cigars tonight. But we did. <laughs> but we did. And uh, I've been there a lot. Yeah. I shouldn't. Okay, we're going yeah, to. Twist my arm. Yeah. And so we sit down with Arsenio, and Arsenio had uh, was a master blender for uh, Casa Fernandez in Nicaragua at the time, a large cigar company. But he had grown up in Cuba. He started smoking cigars when he was 10 years old, right? So his father and grandfather both raised tobacco. They rolled cigars. Um, his, uh, a big, his big part of some of the blends with uh, the Cahiba, um, some of the part of his blends, as well as uh, being, you know, being uh, within that close circle with Fidel Castro back in the 60s. So when everybody else left uh, to the embargo in 60, 58, 62, kind of up in that area, when everybody leaves Cuba, when the government takes over ownership of the cigar companies, Arsenio stayed back there. Right, so he's just, they knew, I mean, the most intelligent people on tobacco and cigars in the world. And just for, for context for people, like blending cigars, you know, again, if people don't smoke cigars, they think, oh, you just wrapped tobacco right. or whatever. <clears throat> but there is an art form. That's why there's these yes. legend master blenders where there's a whole process of taking, you know, different kinds of leaves and, yeah. you know, fig figuring out what you want to what you want to put together. You try it. Yeah. You, you roll it, you try it, you smoke it. Oh, we need needs more of this, so you add more different kinds of leaves yeah. on there, and you roll that, and it's a whole, it's a, it's a long, Absolutely. arduous process. It's not they're not just throwing leaves and they're hoping they blend together. Right, right, and and so it's you know if if the plant is grown in a volcanic soil, mm -hmm. the exact same plant's gonna be different than if it's grown in a sandy soil, or if it's grown on the east side of the hill or the west side. How much sun's it getting, and all of those things. I mean, there, there's so many factors. Yeah. Not unlike making wine, sure. right? And so, so we're 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 sitting there and and we're having cigars with him. And Arsenio, the whole time, is just intrigued with this Native American guy sitting sitting in there. So it turns out, from the time he was a little kid, he read everything in Cuba. He read everything he could find on Indians. Mm. Fascinated with Native people. Mm -hmm. But at 82 years of age, I was the first Native American he'd ever met. So he was wow. just peppering me with questions sure. about all these great battles, these great chiefs, tribes, all of these things. He has all these questions for me. And we're going, and I'm just, through a translator, because we don't speak each other's language. Yeah. You should have been with me. Yeah, I would have translated for you. you. Next time. <laughs> okay. So, we're, so we're, we're sitting there, and everybody's trying to jump in with these questions for him. Because a lot of folks that were with us, there's about a dozen of us there. And it was, a lot of were in the cigar industry, and they are like wanting to glean from this master but all he wants to do is talk Indian stuff. And so finally I realized this guy's kind of a big deal. Uh, and so I asked my buddy, I said, tell him what we're doing with our cigars, gonna sell them, fund the work we're doing on reservations. And so he shared that and he seemed interested in it. And said, okay, now ask him, would he consider blending our cigars for us? Which is a something you don't ask. You don't ask A that. master blender. Yeah, it, you, you just don't. And so. And so I, my, I, my buddy said, I can't, I can't ask him that. Right. He said, do you know who this guy is? Right. Right? And, and I'm like, well, just ask him. Reluctantly, he, he asked him. And when he did, Arsenio just gives me this cold stare. And I said, crap. Yeah, I went too far. I just crossed that line. <clears throat> and everybody in the room's looking around at me like, dude, what are you thinking? Right? 
you just asked Jeff Bezos to be the co-founder of your new little right. company, exactly. right? Like, no, it's not going to happen. And so then they all turned their attention to Arsenio, and everybody's looking at Arsenio. And he gets this big smile on his face and said, I'd be honored to blend your cigars. Amazing. And my buddy later told me, he said, Charles, he said, it'd be like you going to Bono and saying, hey, Bono, I'm putting together this little garage band. Yeah, you want in? Would you be our lead singer and yeah. maybe write a few songs for us? And so uh, so he did. And so he, he blended uh, uh, some the cigars for us. Uh, although the one you're smoking there, Luciano Morales, is the one who in, in Pachardo, Rodeo Pachardo, another Cuban guy, blended that one. And they both learned and trained under Arsenio. And so it's uh, so so we named the cigar at Siniki, which is my name in my wife's Blackfoot language. So in ceremony, I was given the name at Siniki, which means storyteller. Mm. And so uh, uh, so. Uh, and we put the buffalo on there because the proceeds of the sale of our cigars are going to help support the work we do on reservations. And traditionally, um, the buffalo has been uh, a source of, um, uh, of God's providence in our lives because it fed us. We used the hides, the bones, sure. all aspects of the buffalo. And so we put the buffalo on the, uh, the label um, just to kind of remind ourselves of this is why we do what we do. And then we named the, these three cigars after three of our children. Uh, one is a, a little a thinner one called the Nanaya, which means peace. So it's a little milder. The next one is called Emaya, which means victory. Uh, it's a little stronger. And then uh, the one that you're smoking is a Tushke, which is a little bolder, a little stronger. Names are so important, aren't they? they what, are. what we call things, how we identify things. Right. You know, I... I it's funny. So I'm. You have seven kids, which is a lot. Uh, my parents. I'm one of twelve. Um, and well one thing, done. Yeah, and they're and we're all friends and we're all alive and well. It's kind of an anomaly, like kind of a miracle, because I don't know anybody who's had this many kids where there hasn't been any <laughs> loss or tragedy of some you know some yeah. crazy story. Yeah. Someone's in jail or whatever. So I'm very grateful. But one thing that I've always teased my parents about was their lack of creativity with the names. So there's, there are two, my middle name is John. John's a fine name, but there's two of us with middle name John. And there's two of the middle name James and two of the middle name Henry. My dad's name is Henry. So that's a cool, you know, uh, right, you know right. nod to him. But two of us, like, what were you thinking that you just were like, oh, your middle name is John, but you already did John. It doesn't matter. We're doing John. And with our kids, like we, we got real intentional with our kids. Like they're, they're, they have two middle names, and it's first two middle names, and then our last name, obviously. And every every part of their name, it means something to us. Mm. It wasn't just like you're a Sally. It was like no, you're you know, Solus India May, mm. Bell Scarlett Amore, yeah. Roman August Clark. Like mm. every part of those names was a nod to relatives or right. a place that we love <clears throat> yeah. or my heritage. Mm. Like like there's so much in there. And I think that's so important. We we spent yeah. months agonizing over the name because this this child has to keep the name. They right. have to they have to wear that name for the <laughs> rest it. of their lives unless they go change it, which is a super rare thing. And um, so I love I, I just love the intentionality. I, it, it a lot of like Western white you know uh, Anglo-Saxon European like there's just not a lot of that there. I shouldn't say it doesn't exist, right, but right. there's a lot of just mm. like. We're just going to name, you know, a new company or whatever. It's just like, well, this sounds good. Right, right. Let's just name it that, you know, where with this, every bit of it, there's intentionality. Yeah. So, so even like with our, um, 
the names. So like, uh, let's take the Nanaya cigar. The mild one on a scale of one to ten, it's about a three in strength. So Nanaya, the word means peace. Mm-hmm. But when we named our daughter, and, and the hospital is, we're not happy with it because we didn't, when the child was born, we didn't just say, okay, this is their name. So we prayed about, God, what do you want from this child? Sure. What, who is this child? And my wife and I are praying separately on it. Then we come together and we say, I think God is saying this. And she said, yeah, that's what I was thinking too. And then we translate that from what we're talking in English into my Choctaw language. So we've, and so Nanaya, my 14-year-old, is she 14 now? I, I know that drill. My parents still don't know how old we are. They don't know how many kids they have. They don't know how many grandchildren they have. They're just like, this is life. They it's know weird. you got two yeah. Johns, two James, and two <laughs> yeah, Henry's. Yeah, exactly. So, but her full name is Chunkosh Nanaya Atni, which means a heart that hopes for peace. Mm. And so, so just like you may say to a child, you're dumb or you're stupid, man, that begins to, to take mm-hmm. root in them. Mm-hmm. So we say to Nanaya, you have a heart that hopes for peace or reconciliation, right? So we're, we're always speaking these words into them. Amayas means victory. We're always speaking victory into them, right, into her. And so, so, you know, like one of our kids, I think it was like 10 days after the birth before we actually felt like God gave us the name for her. And so, um, but, but the same thing with these cigars, because our, our, our motto with, with the, the cigars is to discover common ground. Mm. that's what we want to do right and so i could be sitting in a cigar shop next to the ceo of a company and next to on one side a janitor on the, on the other yeah and the cigar is the great equalizer yep. and we're hanging out we're talking we're not talking about vacation homes or or we're just having conversation talking and we're discovering <laughs> things we have in common and so uh that's been probably one of the the, the most exciting things about uh, starting the cigar company was just the relationships in the community that has been formed around it. I, I, I want to make sure people realize what you said kind of quickly earlier that you're using, I'm sure, and I know this because my family did it for a long time, kind of raised money to do the work that yeah. we were doing. <clears throat> you probably spent way too much time in previous years raising money yeah. to keep the Red Road going, <laughs> to keep your family yeah. sustained so you could do this work. And now, not to say I don't know your, I don't care about your finances. Maybe you still have to do some of that, but, but now you have this vehicle, right? And this really great vehicle. Again, it's not. Again, you're not selling like, like uh, you know, a pyramid scheme, whatever, like right, like right. essential oils or something. Right. You're selling a product that brings people together. Yeah. It's so well thought out. It's so intentional in how it's made. Everything, everything about it, and it's funding the work that you're doing. Yeah, and and that's it because you're right. I mean for. Most of the, well, the entire time I started the nonprofit, it has been just trying to raise money, just raising money. And we still have to raise it, but now we have a vehicle that's set up to be able to fund it so that, um, you know, so that we can still raise, we'll still continue to raise money, but we can say the money we're raising for this is going specifically to that. And that's, and that's kind of our goal. And you're, you're, uh, as Native American, how I mean, are there other Native American-owned cigar brands? Not that we know of, right? Yeah. And and I, and I, I there's not because of 
the ways over the years, decades, and generations, centuries that Native Americans have been marginalized. I don't, there's not a very entrepreneurial spirit either. Right. Right? Or, or well, is there? Th there is, but not on the mass scales. You know, people create to, to make do. Right. Right. Some of the greatest artists I've ever seen are Native American people with their beadwork, with different things. But as far as being able to mass produce things to do, you know, funding, there's not a lot of that. Um, but uh, so, so with the cigars, it's you know, and especially with the the history of tobacco within Native communities and the sacredness sure. of the tobacco, um, it's it has been a, a natural fit for us. And as you can imagine, the the pushback I've gotten from some in the um, the Christian community. Uh, sure. I had one guy saying, "I I can't believe that you're promoting tobacco and you're selling cigars, promoting the smoking of, of cigars, and and how bad that is for your health." And I just said, "You know what? If I owned a chain of McDonald's restaurants, you'd think I was fantastic. Yeah, you're such a smart entrepreneur, such yeah. a great guy. Yep. And and how healthy is McDonald's?" Right, I dare say McDonald's is doing worse for our health than cigars. Oh, of course. Right. Well, I think you know I've been struggling through as a as a cigar smoker that smokes quite a bit. You know, we live a very healthy lifestyle. We we eat you know almost all organic stuff. We've been vegetarian for six years. Like our wow. kids have grown up. I mean, my kids yeah. eat vegetables every day on their own. Like they <laughs> they they just like take out an onion, I'll cut it up, and they'll just eat onions and peppers and state salad every day. Like. We're trying to do all that, right? But cigars are—I I, was—I was talking to my brother about this yesterday. You know, I like to drink. I like a good drink. Uh, I love beer. Beer's another area, another uh, craft form right, that is right. so mm -hmm. beautiful, and like you can do so much with it. I mean, past generations grew up drinking like lagers, you know, Bud right. Bud Light or whatever, and now we've got this whole—it's this whole industry that is just so beautiful, creating all these tastes and flavors and trying to push the envelope when yeah. it comes to beer. So that's great and all, but I would give up, I would give up alcohol forever in order to keep smoking because <laughs> this, this, this does something different with, with alcohol, you can go too far. I've been with dudes before where, you know, three, four hours into a conversation, two of them are plastered and it's like, well, that wasn't fun. Yeah. You know, now they're, you know, we have to figure out how to get them home. Like it's a whole thing. Right. Yeah. And, and, and with alcohol, I love alcohol. I think it's a great, it also is a great unifier as well, but you can, there's a point where it's like, at a certain point in the evening, it's like too much. Yeah. With cigars, mm -hmm. you, I mean, you have to build up your resilience to it. If you, if you get, yeah. if you get a newbie in, in fact, yeah. I just, I just, <laughs> I just shared a cigar with uh, my priest the other night. We were, had our first in-person meeting in the past three months because we've been uh, doing it all, you know, yeah. and I haven't seen them. We're trying to keep each other safe. But now we're like, they've been at their home for two months. Like, let's get together and mm. actually hang out and talk and catch up. And he doesn't smoke a lot and he likes cigars. We didn't smoke a lot. And he got sick, you know, on one, one stick or whatever. So you do sort of build it up, but you, this is a, it's a way better in my mind. Yes. It is a way mm -hmm. better, bigger unifier yeah. bring people together yeah and I, I think you 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 even talked about it. people talk about these like peace pipe you know yeah uh, kind of ceremonies that they like it's a very deep ingrained part it is way different than smoking cigarettes right i had a phase where i smoked cigarettes when i was on the road a lot with music and stuff like smoked way too many cigarettes that's not a part of my life anymore because it just that feels very throwaway it's not enjoyable you're doing it to get to the next thing it's a it's a it's a whole different ball game right 
Where cigars and pipes, I smoke my pipe a lot as well. It's a whole different yeah. ball game. Really does bring people together. Yeah. So, so like, you know, one of the differences in cigars and cigarettes is that cigarettes have all these other chemicals and stuff thrown yeah. into them. The tobacco for cigars, I mean, they're they're grown, they're picked, they're hung and dried, and then they're rolled into cigars. There's not all these additives nope. to it. It's tobacco. Yeah. And yeah. because I don't inhale. Right. Most most people smoke cigars. Do not inhale and get it down nope. to your lungs. It's not not to say you're not going to get the nicotine and various things, but you know, if as far as choosing your poisons, this is a mild poison to choose. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And uh, but to me, the community around it and within our native communities, um, tobacco has always been very important, very sacred. In that, um, you know, we'd often trade. Or, or if you're going to make a request of somebody, you would give them tobacco. Oh, interesting. Right? Yeah. And if they receive the tobacco, then it's like they're willing to hear you out on whatever it might be. Or maybe traditionally you'd have people coming, uh, meeting in, uh, to discuss um, when's it time to move from this campsite to another one, if you were the Plains tribes that moved around, or going into battle, different things like that. Meeting in a council house or meeting to discuss these things are always done over tobacco. Mm. Uh, and, and so when you uh, put it in a pipe, and oftentimes now we, we, people refer to them as peace pipes, but, but you put the, put the tobacco in a pipe. And as you smoke it and you pass it around to everybody, it's as if it's, it's as you're sharing in the same breath. Sure. Right? Yeah. And so you're not saying that I'm going to agree with you when we're all said and done, but I'm at least agreeing to hear you out hear you out so we're all starting sitting. from a level playing field exactly yeah and so uh so along with the physical form that tobacco takes and as a gift or um it also has a spiritual uh component to it and that as the tobacco burns and the smoke dissipates into the air it's as if our prayers are going to the creator it's mm. as if our prayers are, are going up and yeah. out right and so it has it has multiple properties. Very spiritual. It really is. Yeah. And uh, and so to native people, it's you know, uh, anything can be abused, right? We try and do everything in moderation, um, but uh, but to be able to share a cigar with somebody, uh, I know I'm committing to hour hour and a half, two hours, whatever it might be, and I'll get together with guys and and we'll be hanging out for four or five hours. Maybe go through a couple of cigars, but it's very rich conversation. Yeah. Right. And again, I, people don't have to believe the way I do or think the way I do or anything like that. But something about getting together with cigars is just yep. kind of brings people together. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, if you don't want to admit this on microphone, you don't have to. But what is the <laughs> we'll wrap up right now in a few minutes. What's the most you've ever smoked in like a day? Well, when I was in Nicaragua. Oh, you, I guess, yeah, you said. Yeah, I was going there. there they days. start do, and they just go. Yeah, we do 10 cigars a yeah. day. Yeah. Um, but back here in the States, um, just as far as hanging out, and if it's going from hanging out with one group of guys during the middle of the day to something else later on that evening, I might go through at the most four. Yeah. That's really about, because I'm a that's slow a smoker also, yeah. Yeah. That's a good day. Yeah, especially when you're talking a lot. You know, yeah. if you're not just sitting by yourself smoking, you can go through a lot more that way. Right. But if you're talking in between, yeah. it lasts a lot longer. Yeah. Charles, this was really fun. 
it was it was great to hear your story. Thank you for teaching us. Uh, more, I mean, I feel taught on how to think about Native Americans and their place and role in this country. Again, it's we've we we've maybe have beat this part of the conversation to death, but like like just they're they're so marginalized and we don't think about you all enough. Mm-hmm. And you all are a substantial part of our history mm-hmm. here in the US. And so I'm excited for people just to get I've had a lot of African American friends on to talk about race relations and redlining in cities and all the stuff. We've we've covered that a ton. But I'm excited to kind of introduce this sort of a conversation to the Let's Give a Damn listeners so they can begin to wrestle through it and figure out maybe maybe it'll resonate with my hope is that, you know, we've done 140 something podcasts so far, like a lot of different people, a lot of different backgrounds. My hope is that for some people listening right now, this will hit them differently mm. than other conversations. Yeah. And they'll be interested in figuring out how they can support the Red Road, figuring out how they can support Atsuniki cigars. Can people buy them online or is it just, or are they just in, in different uh, just cigar in shops? Just in brick and mortars yeah. right now. Yeah. Well, if you're in Nashville, friends, where where are they? How how far We're, out? Uh, throughout mo- uh, all of Tennessee. Yep. But, uh, and if people are not local, they can call the shops here and- Right, and get them. And yep. they'll-, they'll Yeah, them. My, my cigar shop here, Smoker's Abbey, will ship them. Yeah. They've always got all of them stocked. So friends, if you need it, look up Smoker's Abbey in Nashville. They'll ship them to you. They really are great smokes. And you'll be supporting not just a great company, but also the Red Road and the work that you guys do. Thank you. So thanks for doing this. This was awesome. I appreciate it. Thanks, Dave. That's the show today, friends. A massive thanks to Charles for joining me on the show. He's awesome. Thank you so much for listening. And many thanks to Red Cat for sponsoring this episode. You can find links and more details about this podcast episode specifically. And let's give a damn in general. And you can find more about Red Cat by visiting the show notes at letsgiveadab.com. I created this show. Chad's Navely produced it. Let's Give a Damn is part of the Matter Media family. We are so grateful to be part of the Matter Media family. You can reach me anytime. Hello at letsgiveadam.com or hello at nicklapar.com. I am sending so much love and peace to each one of you. Crazy times. Stay safe. Keep giving a damn. Bye for now.